Go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we very earnestly and humbly ask of you now, as we reopen your holy word, to hear it proclaimed, we pray that none of us will hear it in vain. But Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will so greatly anoint both the preaching and the hearing of your word, that the ministry of your word will come upon us now in a very effectual way, a way in which there would be salvation brought to those who have yet to close with Christ, and a way in which to your saints there will be a greater and deeper sanctification wrought in their hearts by your word of truth. These things we ask of you in the name and to the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up God's word and let's turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and reading to verse 2. Verses 1 and 2 of Titus, chapter 2. Very short text, but there is a whole lot of meat here for our feeding. Titus, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And let's even take it down to verse 6, because we'll be in verse 6 next week. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, holy word of the living, eternal God. In the epilogue to his well-known book, Reforming Marriage, Douglas Wilson speaks quite bluntly to one of the greatest plagues ever facing our present culture and the church at large. Wilson wrote this, Our culture is characterized by men who are embarrassed to be men. We have in our folly wandered from the Bible's teaching on masculinity and its central importance for Christian homes. We have sought with the wisdom of foolish men to replace the hardness of masculinity with the tenderness of women. The results in our marriages and families and consequently for our culture have been nothing short of disastrous. The truth of Wilson's scathing observation can be seen on many different fronts. First, since our culture is distinguished by men who, as Wilson says, are embarrassed to be men, the substitute for this shame is a society driven 
by feminist ideologies and effeminate behavior. We see this at large in popular culture, where everything from the news media to television to movies to politics panders and promotes a particular image of man which would maintain his maleness while stripping him of his masculinity. This is why sitcoms, for example, typically portray husbands as cowardice, whiny, dumb bunnies who abdicate their leadership to their strong-willed, always intelligent, independent wives. And if there is any hint of masculinity in the husband, it is a false masculinity which expresses itself by speaking and acting in a noisy, egotistical, and swaggering manner. But the tragedy of this kind of character is that rather than taking responsibility for both his own actions and that of his family, he is always depicted as making excuses and projecting the blame. Yet when this kind of man is paraded across our TV screens, we laugh when we should be weeping. At the other end of the spectrum, though, there is the growing and increasing pressure in our culture to embrace homosexuality, which is an outright denial and perversion of what God has made both men and women to be. So let's be very clear about this. Homosexuality is a sin against God, period. I say this knowing that many evangelicals today refuse at all costs to confess such a truth. But if we're going to be faithful to the word of God and faithfully proclaim the saving gospel of Christ to homosexuals, then we must affirm clearly without apology, but certainly with compassion for the sinner, what God says about the sin of homosexuality. God calls it an abomination in Leviticus 18, verse 22, because it is rooted in what Romans 1:26 describes as dishonorable passions, which refers to affections that are vile, shameful, and improper in every way. Moreover, as Romans 1:26 also makes plain, homosexuality is contrary to nature. God never created man to have sexual relations with another man, nor a woman with another woman. To have such desires and carry them out is the result of sin, not creation. In fact, before sin entered this world, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that part of God's created order was the institution of marriage, which he ordained as a covenant union between one man and one woman. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, in the beginning. Homosexuality, therefore, is not the product of genetics, but of a sinful heart which has chosen to defy and degrade what God created and instituted for mankind. But if you're living in a culture that has wandered from the Bible's teaching on masculinity, as Douglas Wilson affirms, it is no surprise that the sin of homosexuality is taking a settled seat in the minds of many as what should be viewed as normal, positive, celebrated behavior. In other words, when the conscience of our culture is no longer awakened to what God has created and called man to be, then the ultimate and terrible consequence will be a rising generation of men who will deny their masculinity by morphing effeminate characteristics and female sexuality and daring to call it normal. 
However, we must shamefully confess that the growing tolerance and celebration of homosexuality combined with the emasculation of men functioning as men is tragically the fault of the church making its own departure from the righteous standard of God's word. This form of apostasy has been going on for over a hundred years. But it seems that now we are beholding the full harvest of what has only once been in seed form. From the pulpit to the pew, there has been a radical loss of what we would call a biblical worldview. And where this loss seems to be felt the most is in how we define human sexuality gender roles, the identity and sanctity of marriage, and what constitutes a true family. But certainly the beginning of such a loss is when the Word of God no longer sets the standard for what makes men to be men. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. And so in light of this, I want us to turn our attention to Titus chapter 2, where Paul wanted Titus, his apostolic delegate, to teach as to the differing age, gender, and social groups in the church what God requires as to how they are to conduct themselves in a godly manner. And specifically for our study over the next two weeks, I want us to examine the biblical mandate for the character and conduct of older and younger Christian men. So here then, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and verses 6 through 8, I want to seek to answer one critical question. What does godliness look like in the older and younger Christian men? In other words, what is biblical masculinity? To answer this question, we'll begin this morning to consider only the marks of godliness in the older men. Look with me once more at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul opens verse 1 with a call for separation in Titus as a minister and then in the churches on Crete as Christians distinguished from their ungodly culture. He says, but as for you, and the you is emphatic, as for you, Titus, in contrast to the false teachers whom Paul described to Titus in the latter half of chapter 1 as detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, Titus, on the other hand, was to be nothing like them. And his first step in separation from the false teachers was to teach what accords with sound doctrine. This means that in opposition to the false doctrine and ungodly living of the false teachers, Titus was to devote his life and ministry to what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the question might be asked, well, why sound doctrine? What's the big deal in teaching what accords with, which means fitting and suitable, with sound doctrine. Why this, this kind of mandate when it comes to practical Christian living? It is because healthy doctrine produces healthy Christian living. What you believe determines how you live. 
This is why we see in such New Testament books like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians a heavy teaching on sound doctrine followed by a heavy teaching on Christian living. The fruit of right doctrine is righteous living. Or as one writer put it, the Bible never divorces doctrine from duty, truth from behavior. So then immediately following this command to teach what accords with sound doctrine, Paul then lays down ethical standards for godly living. But it must be noted that these ethical standards for godly living is what Paul is referring to as suitable and fitting for sound doctrine. The sound doctrine is actually later in this chapter beginning at verse 11 where Paul impacts the saving gospel of God's grace in Christ. So then these marks of godliness should be seen in all the differing age and gender groups of the church and seen as the fruit of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has brought into their lives. Hence, in response to the sound doctrine of the gospel, older men and women and younger men and women should live in a certain way that marks them out as having been saved by God's grace in Christ. Thus, to the older men of the church, for Titus to teach what is fitting for them, these older men, as it relates to the sound doctrine of the gospel, these men are to be what? They're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, when Paul speaks here of older men, he has in mind men who are above 50 years of age. We know this because in ancient Greek literature, this word for older was used to describe men in their 50s and above. In fact, Paul even uses this very same term to describe himself in, the letter, in his letter to Philemon when at that time Paul himself was in his 60s. Taken together, this is the age group we're looking at, 50 and older. In addition to their chronological age, it should go without saying that these older men Titus is to teach are older Christian men. They're not just older men in general. We're talking about older Christian men. They are men who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They are men in whose lives the grace of God has transformed by making them a new creation. They are not men of this world, but men in Christ. So although I could assume and take it for granted that you know this, yet it would be very foolish on my part to do so, please understand the standard set forth by divine inspiration for these older men is a standard that can only be a reality for those men who have been born again. This teaching, therefore, is not just a helpful bit of moralism that anybody can achieve with just a little bit of positive thinking. This call on the older men is a gospel call. This is a gospel call to godly living. Now, as to the specific nature of this call to the older Christian men, they are to live holy, exemplary lives before God, the church, and the world at large. They are therefore to abandon the recklessness, the thoughtlessness, the instability that are so characteristic of youth. So then when we look at the lives of older Christian men of the church, this is what we should see. This is what is expected by God's divine standard. So let's break this down. 
First, they are to be sober-minded. They are to be sober-minded. Older men, Paul tells Titus, are to be sober-minded. This means that we should see in older Christian men the grace of avoiding extravagance and overindulgence. The sober-minded Christian man is able to discern more clearly which things are of greatest importance and value. He uses his time, money, energy more carefully and selectively than when he was younger and less mature. His priorities are in the right order and he is thus satisfied with fewer things. In fact, like Paul in his old age, the older Christian man has learned to be content in whatever circumstances God's providence has ordered for his life. But that contentment has come through much testing and pruning by the chastening hand of God, the result of which the older Christian man finds his strength to be all in Christ who empowers him to be content with either little or much. Second, they are to be dignified. They are to be dignified. Again, Paul says to Titus, older men are to be dignified. The Greek word Paul employs here is a noun which originally carried the idea of revered and venerable, but later came to be used generally of a person or thing that is honorable and hence dignified. In this context, the older Christian man is to be someone who demonstrates a certain somberness about him in the best sense of that word. This means there is nothing giddy, frivolous, or absurdly silly about him. The word trivial would find no attachment to either who this man is or how he lives. Moreover, as a godly man, he would find no humor in coarse jesting, discourtesy, or anything that would glorify sin or make little of the call to be holy. Teasing out this characteristic even further, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, Older Christian men have lived long enough to see many people including good friends and close family members, experience serious misfortune, suffer great pain, and perhaps die at an early age. They may have seen a spouse or a child suffer leukemia or some other form of cancer or debilitating disease. They have learned the value of time and opportunity. They better accept and comprehend their own mortality, the imperfections of this present world, and the inability of material things to give lasting, deep satisfaction. They have seen utopian ideas fail and have learned how short-lived and disappointing euphoric emotional experiences can be, even those, or perhaps especially those, that purport to be of a higher spiritual order. So when we see godliness in the older men of the church, we should expect to see a certain graveness in their demeanor which has been molded in them over many years of walking with Christ in a fallen, sinful world. They are Christian men who have learned to number their days as a matter of learning how to redeem the time entrusted to them by God. Moreover, their very outlook on life is not morbid nor stoic, but God-honoring and God-fearing. Hence, the dignified senior Christian man can say with Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear him. That is the dignity of an older Christian man. Third, 
They are to be self-controlled. They are to be self-controlled. Older men are to be, Paul tells Titus, self-controlled. Now this particular term, translated self-control, comes from a Greek compound word that actually carries the idea of one who is discreet. One who is discreet. Thus it refers to the grace of being able to limit one's own freedom and ability with sound, proper thinking, which demonstrates a conquering self-control on all passions and desires. Now, why should this particular fruit of God's redeeming grace be seen with such pronouncement in the older men of the church? Well, it is because in the older Christian man, his mind has been so shaped by the Word of God over the long years of saturating his thinking in the truth of Scripture that he understands and perceives what the world, the flesh, and the devil are really after. And through the indwelling power of the Spirit, he has learned to resist in many dark valleys the myriad temptations which assault him. He is therefore a very temperate, sensible, godly man. He is a man who is self-controlled. Fourth, the older men in the church are to be healthy in three particular Christian graces. They're to be healthy in three particular Christian graces. In the latter half of our text here in Titus 2 and verse 2, Paul mandates for the older men of the church to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The term translated here as sound is the same Greek verb which Paul has already used in verse 1 to describe the kind of doctrine Titus was to teach. The word refers to that which is healthy, that which is proper and whole. Moreover, Paul uses this term in the same grammatical construction as he, as he did in verse 1. It is a present active participle. The present tense is, of course, indicating that this soundness in faith, love, and steadfastness should be ongoing, perpetual. The active voice shows that this is to be what the older Christian men are doing themselves. They are responsible to be sound in these attributes. And the participle simply tells us that this is the assumed reality we should see in the older men of the church. Now, as to the particular graces which God's Word calls forth as an ever-constant reality in the lives of older Christian men, they are as follows. In the first place, they are to be sound in faith. Sound in faith. Christian men who have walked with the Lord from their youth well into their senior years should be men that have learned that God can be trusted at all times and in every way. The healthiness of their faith in Christ shows up in every situation demonstrating an unfettered trust in God's all-wise providence ordering their every step in all affairs of life. Like Paul when he was shut up in a Roman prison, the, the older Christian man should be able to say of such circumstances. And this is recorded in Philippians chapter 1, 12, and 13, where Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
Those words from the pen of Paul manifest a faith in God that is of the healthiest nature. He saw his circumstances as ordered by God. So his imprisonment was redemptive in its purpose. His trust in the Lord did not waver nor doubt God's love, goodness, and mercy that was as much for him in that awful Roman prison as it would have been if he were set free. This is being sound in faith. It's living by faith and not by sight. It is trusting in the Lord with our whole heart rather than leaning on our own understanding to decide the way we should go. And it is breathing as one's native air, if you will, the unshakable promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Standing daily on this promise, the older Christian man has come to see that no matter what he faces, whether it yields pain or pleasure, God, by His sovereign wisdom and power, is bringing all these things together to fulfill one grand divine purpose. And that is shaping the character of this Christian man more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Hence, the older men of the church should be seen as sound in faith. But in the second place, they're also to be sound in love. They're to be sound in love by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit over many years of pruning, molding, transforming this brother's character, the older men of the church should manifest the grace of Christian love as it ought to be. A love given first for God and then second for their neighbor. And a love that has shown itself in sacrifice and selflessness for their wives combined with a conscious investment of having brought their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Furthermore, to see this soundness of love in the older Christian man is to see a genuine love for the church. They love their fellow Christian brethren as Christ loves them. Hence, this love is characterized by patience, kindness, forbearance, and joy in the truth. It is not arrogant. It is not envious or rude. It is not self-seeking or easily provoked. Nor is it resentful. No, this is a godly love. It is a love wrought in the heart of these older Christian men by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They therefore not only love the Lord, His church, and their own natural family, but they even love their enemies. They even love their enemies. Remember what Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. He commands that you love your enemies. And so therefore, we should see in the older Christian man a love for his enemies by which he prays for them on the one hand, which is what Jesus commands us to do to our enemies, and doing them good on the other as providence would allow. This is the kind of love Paul has in mind when he tells Titus to instruct the older men to be sound in love. In the third and final place, they're to be sound in steadfastness. They're to be sound in steadfastness. This term Paul employs is a compound word which literally means 
to abide under. To abide under. It came to refer to that attribute of patience that we would describe as perseverance. It is therefore patience which does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. So then in the older Christian men, we should expect to see a life that has been greatly tried and tested through the years at many different levels and on many different fronts. But, but through these hard seasons, they have learned through Christ to remain steadfast and thus to persevere. And this kind of perseverance is what we see again in the Apostle Paul when he related to Timothy of one of his greatest trials recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul reported here to his son in the faith. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, let's get the picture here. This time in Paul's life was when he was brought before a Roman court of law. And there in that court, he gave a defense for the gospel. The price for such a stand could have been fatal. But what's more is that on this particular occasion, Paul tells us, not a single friend or fellow laborer in the ministry came to speak in Paul's behalf. Paul says, they all deserted me. How painful this must have been for Paul. And, and yet how tempting it would have been for Paul to just give up. To desert his own calling as a gospel minister and thus turn his back on Christ out of fear for his own life. But what did Paul do? What does he tell us? He persevered. He persevered. He remained steadfast. He did not succumb to this adversity which was clearly trying him on more than one level. Paul was sound in steadfastness. And certainly as he clarifies, the source of his perseverance was the fact that the Lord stood with him. However, Paul had to act on that grace Christ had given to him if he was going to persevere. Paul was responsible for his actions. So he did not desert Christ because Christ enabled him to hold true to his calling and commission as a gospel minister. Therefore, like Paul in his steadfastness, we should see the same in all Christian men who have entered into their more seasoned senior years. Men who exhibit the ability to endure hardship, to accept disappointment and failure, to be satisfied despite thwarted personal desires and plans. They have learned to graciously live with such difficulties as physical weaknesses, loneliness, and being misunderstood and underappreciated. Furthermore, they do not lose heart when things do not turn out the way they had hoped and expected, but they have an unshakable confidence that God is indeed working all things for their good, for their ultimate glorification. It's like General Stonewall Jackson. 
after having his arm amputated due to being mistakenly shot by one of his own men, this faithful Christian man, and yes, Thomas J. Jackson was a faithful Christian man. This faithful Christian man could say, and he said this not long before he died, You find me severely wounded, but not unhappy or depressed. I believe that it has been done according to the will of God, and I acquiesce entirely in his holy will. It may seem strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today, for I am sure that my heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. That is a soundness in steadfastness. Indeed, friend, that's a soundness in great faith. Great faith in a great God. So, when we see the older men of the church, when we observe their life in action, the Word of God in Titus chapter 2, verse 2 teaches us that this is what we should expect to see. They're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Have you picked up on what is most important here that should be seen in older Christian men and, and also even in younger Christian men as they should be pursuing this and aspiring to this? What matters most here is called character. Character. There is nothing in this text about how much money they make. Nothing in this text about how much education they have. Nothing in this text about their physical appearance, their physical strength. There is nothing at all in this text about what the world looks at, what the world praises, what the world holds up as their standard. Their standard for what? Success. No. God's standard is very different. God's standard is about character. It's about who you are, not what you have. It is about who you are. And so what we read here in Titus 2 and verse 2 we should not expect to see anything less in the character and conduct of Christian men who have reached their senior years after having had such a long walk with Christ. Moreover, these godly qualities are a snapshot of what qualifies as true masculinity. So if you want to see authentic manliness... In a man as God has designed him to be, then you should look for this. Look for this. Is he sober-minded? Is he dignified? Is he self-controlled? Is he sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness? That's what you look for. 
But certainly the searching question we must ask in response to Titus 2 and verse 2 is this. Do these characteristics show themselves in the older men of our church? And are they also characteristics that we see the younger men pursuing, aspiring to? So to the older and younger men, ask yourself this, dear brother, are you sober-minded? Are you sober-minded? Is there a holy restraint in all your passions? Have you mastered your lusts through the wisdom of the word and by the power of the spirit? Are your priorities ordered in such a way that Jesus Christ can be clearly seen in your life as the Lord, the Redeemer, and the treasure of your whole existence? And are you a dignified man? Are you a dignified man? What what is your outlook on life? Is there a depth of seriousness in your demeanor that has been sanctified by God and freed you from the superficial, trivial, slapstick of this world? Do you walk in a healthy and holy fear of God? Have you a real sense of your own remaining sin and the daily need to kill it by the Spirit's power? And then, are you a self-controlled or discreet man? Is your mind being renewed and transformed by the Word of God rather than being shaped by this ungodly world? Do you set your mind on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father? Are you a heavenly-minded man? Is your judgment and discernment clear and biblical? With the truth ruling your ideas and not your feelings. And do you have a healthy, robust, sanctified faith, love, and steadfastness? Are you trusting God in all things, with all things, and for all things? Do you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? Are you sound in faith? And do you walk in love? Do you walk in love? How much do you really love God? How much? We're commanded is to be with all of our heart, with all of our mind, soul, and strength. And what about your neighbor? Do you treat others the way you would have them to treat you? Oh, that's a command that's easy to understand, but it's very, very hard to do. Do you love your wife if you're married? Do you love your wife as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her? Do you love your children and perhaps even your grandchildren if you have any where you're willing to sacrifice your time and energy to invest in them a godly heritage? And do you love the church? Do you love the church? Do you pray for, encourage, support, and admonish your fellow Christians? And then, again, what about your enemies? 
What about your enemies? Do you show them love, praying for them? Doing them good if, if again, providence would permit? Are you sound in love? And lastly, have you learned patience and perseverance on God's anvil of trials and tribulations? Here is a very searching question. How quick are you to turn the other cheek when you are personally insulted? How quick are you to overlook a transgression and refrain from anger? What do such trials as these and others reveal about the strength of your character to persevere in faithfulness toward Christ and in obedience to his word, especially when it's inconvenient and very unpopular? And when you suffer loss, when you suffer loss of any kind, do you remain true to Christ? Do you remain true to Christ, trusting in the wisdom of his providence that is working all things together for your good? Are you sound in steadfastness? Beloved, these are the kind of older men who will make a church healthy and blaze a trail for the next generation of Christian men to follow for the honor and glory of Christ. The church needs such men. These are the men who are not embarrassed to be true men. They do not shirk their responsibilities and make excuses for why they have sinned and failed to carry out God's call in their lives. But instead they answer God's call by a humble, a humble admission of their own weakness, repenting of their besetting sins, looking ever constant toward Christ as their only righteousness and the assurance of their final glorification. And they do this as they're working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Counting the cost, because there is a cost to be a godly man in Jesus Christ. For his church, for their natural family, and for the world at large as a witness of God's saving power. Brothers and sisters, may we pray for such men that God would richly sanctify them in these graces so that Christ and his honor would be displayed for the treasure that Jesus truly is. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious eternal Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your high and holy standard a standard that meets all of your saints in general and a standard that meets them in very particular and peculiar ways, even as we have just seen from your word in the directives given to older Christian men. And blessed Father, for such older Christian men that are even here today and those that are part of our church family at Providence. We pray, blessed Father, for them all, 
that there would be a greater and richer sanctification wrought in their hearts, a greater sanctification whereby the image of Jesus Christ will be seen in greater display, and where, Lord, there is a greater mortification of sin in their lives, and thereby a greater pursuit of holiness in all things. Father, we earnestly pray and plead with you today that such would be the mercies that you would pour out upon older Christian men. And for younger Christian men, Lord, who make up the majority of the men in this church family, we pray that what they have heard this day May the Holy Spirit seal to their hearts with great conviction and work in them a great and holy aspiration to pursue these graces by the Spirit's power. These things we pray earnestly for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.